Yeah, if God had a message for you, would you want to know what it was? Because I think he's got a message for us today. And before we get there, I just want to say welcome to everyone in this room. Thanks for being here. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to those of you watching online. But I'd like to do something really quick. I like to give honor where honor is due. Uh, can we say thanks for the booth and everybody that helps out back in the booth every week? Uh, this week... Or actually, today specifically, we had a bunch of changes we had to make this morning. Those guys are back there just making magic happen, and so I uh, really appreciate them. Hey, I wanted to let you know on the front end of this, I've, been, I've just really appreciated the uh, conversations that, uh, that you guys have been having around this particular sermon series. I keep hearing incredible feedback from many of your neighboring groups. If you're not in a group, you need to get in a group. It's one of our main focuses here. We call it the biggest win outside of faith in Jesus is to have everyone in a group. And in these groups, you're talking about this series, and we knew that this series was going to elicit a lot of opinions, and it sounds like you guys are approaching those opinions and approaching this conversation with both truth and grace in mind, which is where we get our name Trace, and so that's important to us, and so thanks for doing that. But for those of you that are new to the conversation, let me quick kind of give you a quick overview of kind of the approach of this particular series called Text and what we were hoping to accomplish. Ultimately, what we want to do in this series is to give you a deeper understanding of God's Word, and specifically how to interact with both the Old and the New Covenant. And one of the statements we made up front is when you lack a deeper understanding of God's word, you will most certainly use it wrong. Now, for the sake of putting us all on the same playing field, let me say this, we have all, everybody say all, we have all used the Bible incorrectly at one point or another. And so it's incredibly important that we navigate this well and that we pursue this together because we don't want to use God's word incorrectly, especially if it means we're going to lead somebody away from Jesus in the process. Now, one of the other things we said on the front end of this is we're going to challenge how you use the Bible, but by no means are we challenging the Bible. And so on the front end of this, we kind of built a framework of belief uh, as a church. And just to remind you that we believe the entire Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe the entire Bible is true, and everyone should study it for themselves. And you see D1 there, which is our most basic way for you to study and interact with God's Word. Now, I do have a confession for you this morning, and so just bear with me really quick. In our attempt to help you to talk with some of your skeptical friends about the Bible and about Jesus, one of the statements that we made was um, sometimes it may be necessary to set the Bible aside. Sometimes it may be necessary to set the Bible aside because for a lot of people, if you've got friends that are skeptics or maybe atheists, the Bible holds no authority in their life. And so if you're kind of pushing the Bible forward as the first approach to that conversation, uh, they may dismiss you altogether because of where their stance is on the Bible. Now, here's my confession to you. I think we could have given you a better statement. I think we could have given you a better statement than set the Bible aside. And some of you guys are wondering right now, he must have gotten a lot of complaints that he's doing this. I had one conversation. I had one conversation with someone who I respect, one conversation with somebody who I call a friend, and based on our conversation and her input, I'm like, you know what? I, I can be humbled in that. I'll be humbled in that to say that we probably could have given you a better statement. And so here's the statement. This is ultimately what we were getting at. For some people, instead of saying set the Bible aside, here's a better way to say it, start with a different conversation. 
Start with, for some people, you're going to have to start with a different conversation. You're going to have to start with a different approach because the Bible just doesn't hold authority in their life. And the reason why I wanted to take the time to do what I'm doing right now is because we always, listen to me, we always want to communicate the truths of the Bible. And so by no means did I ever mean uh, anything about like setting aside the truths of God's word. It was specifically just this idea of kind of pushing the Bible in front of people when it holds no authority in their life. But I really do believe this is a better statement that we could have given you to use. And so moving forward, this is what I would encourage you to do. When it comes to some people in your life, you're going to have to start with a different conversation. You're going to have to start with a different approach. Sound good? All right, let me jump into our content for today. We are continuing in this text series today where we are looking specifically at the book of Galatians. And the reason we're looking at the book of Galatians is because in this book, we find people who are actually using part of the Bible wrong. They're mixing and matching covenants. They're taking the old covenant and trying to bring it into the new covenant. And this is something that Paul says, no, 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 no. This is not what I taught you. When he was a church planter in the, in the region of Galatia, he did not teach this. And so you're going to pick up really quick that he is frustrated. So if you have your Bibles with you today, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. So go ahead and turn them open or turn them on. You can find your way there. But before we jump into our text, uh, let me begin this way. If you were a business owner, and as a business owner, you started to put some business practices in place. And when you put those business practices in place, it started to really affect your profit margin. And your, your business started to tank and it started to fall apart. And then you realized this was happening. So you started to put some wise business practices into place. And by doing that and reading the appropriate books, whatever that looks like, your profit margin started to grow and your business started to thrive. Wouldn't it be foolish to go back to the old way of doing business? Let's talk about this for sports fans. If there was a football coach and he decided he was going to change up his offense and he was going to move his players around, and when he did that and he changed up his offense, they started to decrease their yards per down and ultimately started losing more games. And then he decided, okay, I've got, the, I've got the, the players in the wrong place. And so he started moving them once again, changed up his offense, found the right place that each player should be in. And then they started getting more yards per down. Then they started winning more games. Wouldn't it be foolish for that football coach to go back to the old offense. What about this one? What if you started exercising incredibly poor uh, financial decisions? And when you did that, you created a ton of debt for yourself. And then you got into FPU. How many Dave Ramsey fans in the house? Anybody? Yeah, give it up for Dave Ramsey. And so you get into to the FPU, Financial Peace University, and you learn what this debt snowball effect looks like, and you start getting rid of some credit cards, and you finally, maybe for the first time in your life, start living with some financial freedom and some financial peace. Wouldn't it be foolish to go back to the old way of doing things? Friends, as we land in Galatians 3 today, we're going to find a very frustrated Apostle Paul. And he's frustrated for good reason, because you have these guys called Judaizers, and these were guys who believed in Jesus, but what they were doing is they were teaching these Gentiles in Galatia, Gentiles is somebody that's not Jewish, that, yeah, we, we want you to follow Jesus too, but you also need to follow the law of Moses. In other words, you need to go back to the old way of doing things. And by doing this, they were putting this unnecessary yoke on the shoulders of these Gentiles to say that really what Jesus accomplished wasn't enough, that you still had to go back and fall underneath this law of Moses. And you can imagine, for good reason, the Apostle Paul is livid with this. Because this was not the covenant of grace, this new covenant that Jesus brought, that he taught to these people in Galatia. 
You see, ultimately what, what they're doing is they were finding freedom for the, well, actually, let me take that back. For the Jewish people, they were living in death because that's the only place the law would have ever taken them. They were living in death. They find freedom and life in Jesus for the first time, and now they're going back down a dead-end road again, and they're taking people with them. And so the Apostle Paul is not having it, and he decides that he's going to write a letter, the letter that we now know as Galatians. And what he's trying to help them to see is you're now heading back down a road of rules and regulations that completely displaces the relationship that Jesus came to establish. It doesn't mean the old covenant was bad, but what Jesus was bringing into the world and brought into the world is something completely new, and it displaces the need to live under the old. Now, for those of you new to the church, I want to kind of give you a quick 20,000-foot flyover of kind of some of the things that they would have understood then that we might not understand today. So when it came to the law of Moses, many of us know that as the Ten Commandments, right? This was God's covenant with the, Israel, uh, the Israelites, the Israel people, and it pointed to his standard of perfection and righteousness. And this is a good thing. Think about this for a second. If God had a standard, if there was a standard in which we were to live, and he didn't tell us what that standard was, wouldn't he be an unjust God? Yeah. So for him to actually put in place, it's like, hey, I'm going to show you what the standard is, and I'm going to show you a standard that you actually can't fulfill, which is why you'll know you'll need my son Jesus. And so you get this kind of system, the sacrificial system. I talked to you about this a few weeks, weeks ago. When you break a command, we call it a sin, you must offer a blood sacrifice, what the old covenant would have called atonement for that sin because you can't be separated from God. And so this idea of offering a blood sacrifice, sacrificing a lamb or a goat, this idea that blood is the essence of life, that was the sacrifice that God required. And then you have Jesus come on scene. And for the first time ever, you have someone who lives a perfect life, the only person to have ever done that. And then Jesus offers his body and his blood as the last sacrifice that will ever be needed because it's the only perfect sacrifice that has ever been given. And because of that, we're no longer required to live out the Ten Commandments perfectly because Jesus fulfilled that requirement. But now we have these Galatians. And based on some bad teaching, have completely missed the message of grace and they're mixing and matching these covenants. And when you do that, you don't get the best of either. You actually get the worst of both. Now, it was bad enough that you had these Jews, what they would have called Judaizers, who were followers of Jesus, but also teaching others to uh, follow the law of Moses. It was bad enough that they were doing that. But when they start pulling Gentiles into that conversation, people that didn't even have Jewish heritage, this makes the Apostle Paul incredibly upset and probably nervous because he knows if he doesn't stomp this out quick, it's not going to go anywhere that's going to be effective. It's not going to go anywhere that's going to lead to anything healthy. And so he's ready to pick a fight. And so if you have your Bibles with you, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, here's how he begins. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, who has brainwashed you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In other words, there's probably some people that are going to be receiving this letter that likely actually saw Jesus on the cross. Keep that in mind. He said, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. And I can kind of sense the, uh, the, the sense of sarcasm in Paul's voice here. I think Paul had the spiritual gift of sarcasm. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, by the stuff that you did, or by believing what you heard? 
Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh, by the stuff that you do? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, by the stuff that you do, or by believing what you heard, by putting your trust and faith in what Jesus did? Have you ever struggled with change? Anybody? Have you ever struggled with accepting a new way of doing things? Did you know that Pastor Corey still doesn't have an iPhone? Some of you may call that contentment. I call it a lack of coolness. Can I get off on a tangent for a second? Stay with me. All you Android fans. Jesus loves you, but you're weird if you ask me. Yeah. No. Hey, hey, easy. This is church. Um, let me take a time out for a second. I'm going to get off on a detour. Stay with me really quick. Do you know where I've seen people struggle with change potentially the most? In the church. You start playing different music, start adding different instruments, start using some lights that move around, maybe even have some haze in the room. Then you have a preacher that starts maybe using different versions of the Bible. God forbid we start focusing on people outside the church instead of just those inside the church and you allow your preacher to come up and preach and jeans like this. I'm look like a bum for goodness sakes. I mean, why would we ever, why would we ever do that? Yeah. You know where this leads? This narrative of resistant thinking leads to a culture that this is all supposed to be about you. And when we end up with this insider, consumer-driven, focused church, we start to tear away at the fabric of the very purpose of what the church is for. Let me remind you that Jesus looked at us and really clearly said, I'll leave every one of you guys if there's somebody outside those doors that doesn't know me yet. Doesn't mean he'll leave you forever, but I'll walk away from every church person in front of me if there's an unchurched person that doesn't know about the grace that I came to give them yet. May we always be a church that's willing to be innovative in hopes to reach people outside the doors of this church. Because you know what creates the healthiest insiders? Listen to me. You know what creates the healthiest insiders? People who are focused on those outside the church. And so can we just kind of take that mantle together and always be that kind of church? Time back in. For many of the early Jewish followers, they're struggling. They're struggling with this idea of change. They no longer need to follow the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, because it was all they had ever known. Now, that doesn't mean the Ten Commandments aren't important even to us today because, again, they point to a standard, God's standard of perfection, his expectation for his creation in which Jesus fulfilled. And when Jesus fulfilled the law, he brought something completely new, a completely new way for us to relate to God, which leads me to my one thing for today, which is this right here. Through Jesus, it's no longer about trying. Through Jesus, it's about trusting Now, let's take a moment and talk about this for a second because even though most of us understand the covenant of grace that was made available through Jesus, we still find this works-based faith approach of God and it finds itself back into our lives, sometimes subconsciously, and we don't even know it's there. And so if you'll allow me to, because I believe this is incredibly dangerous, if you'll allow me to, I wanna point out two specific things that I think cause us to kind of fall back into this works-based faith mentality and approach of God. And I think it comes to, through two different areas, performance and through our pride. And so let me start with this performance approach of God. If I do enough good stuff, 
then God is happy with me. And when I don't, he won't. In other words, he'll be disappointed. And this leads to what I call a performance theology. As long as I perform, then me and God are okay, but what if I don't? Does that mean me and God are not okay? Is God disappointed in me? Is he looking down on me with shame? So what I need to do, I just need to pray more. I need to go to church more often. I need to read my Bible more. And this type of performance language gives us a posture that says, when I do these things, then I'm a better Christian, which makes me and God okay. It's as if God only likes us if we're doing the right things, or at least not the wrong thing. Now, let's just pause here for a moment, because is, is it a good thing to come to church and gather together? Yes, because when we gather, we grow together. Is it a good thing to pray? Yes, because we align our spirits with the Spirit of God and hoping to realize and, and to be convicted on the direction and the path that God wants us to have. These should be natural postures of our life, not because we need to perform for God, but because the posture of our life, once we know what Jesus has done for us, is to want to live for him every day, to want to know what it looks like to to get to know him more so that we can show him more. We study our Bibles because we want to know the heart of God so that we can show the heart of God, not because we need to perform, not so that we can just make sure he's happy with us. I want to share a statement with two different groups of people in this room. For some of you, or I should say the first group, would be those of you that maybe feel like you're caught up in this performance approach to God for whatever reason. And for uh, the other group in this room, it may be people that, maybe you're new to all this and you're still trying to figure out, like, I don't even, I don't know how God sees me. I don't know how to interact with God. And so my hope is that this statement brings you some clarity this morning. It's this statement right here. Friends, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore, and there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. That should get an Amen. And maybe the best verse to solidify that point, so it's not just my opinion, is in Romans chapter 5. Paul begins this way. He says, when we were utterly helpless. Can I say it again? When we were utterly helpless, meaning when we didn't have anything to offer. Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still jacked up. That's my version. While we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, thank you, Lord, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. What does that look like? God's condemnation. What is it that condemns us? The law. The law of Moses is actually what condemns us. The law pointed to a standard that we couldn't live up to, which is why Jesus had to suffer a Roman crucifixion, defeat death, and walk out of a grave. And you know what that means? Listen to me. It means you don't have to perform. It means you don't have to perform. Now, let me talk to us about this pride approach, this works-based pride approach to God for a second. Because in all honesty, some of us get stuck in this works-based approach of God because it appeals to our pride. I think there's a little Pharisee in every single one of us. When I feel like I'm doing awesome things for God, then God sees me as more awesome. God, look at all these awesome things I'm doing for you. Here's a dose of humility for each and every one of us this morning. God doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me, but he would love to use us. 
Can I be transparent for a second? Uh, early in my ministry career, I definitely probably had a bigger chunk of pride. We all still have a chunk of pride in us, but probably had a bigger chunk of pride in me than I, than I needed. And God, along the years, over the years, has humbled me in several different ways, and I'm very thankful for that. But there were times, if I'm honest, where I felt like I would be up in a position like this and I would preach what I would consider an incredible message. And I'm like, man, I'd walk off stage and I'm like, man, I just crushed it. Where are all the people who want to give their lives to Jesus because I just crushed that message? Come on, I mean, where are you? I mean, that's almost the posture in which I had. But with time and with a lot of humbling and a lot of stumbling, God has humbled me and he's reminded me, Aaron, I don't need you to be awesome. I really don't need you at all. But if you'll hand your life over to me, and you'll just be faithful, I'll do some incredible things through you. And he has. Friends, it's never what we do, it's what the Holy Spirit is doing through us. I think sometimes God literally needs to get this message to some of us. Hey, if you want me to use you, can you get out of my way? Let me remind you that it's never what we're doing, but it's what the Spirit of God is doing in us on his behalf. And that's actually a good segue for us to jump back into the book of Galatians because the topic of God's spirit was a main focus in chapter three. Let me remind you of what he said in verse five. This is what Paul says. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, by performing, by doing enough awesome things, by following a set of rules? Is that how you got God's spirit? Or by believing and trusting in Jesus, in, trust, in trusting, believing what you heard. Let me remind you through Jesus, it's no longer about trying. Friends, it's about trusting. But Paul knows that if he doesn't correct this dangerous theology now, it's going to get way out of hand. Because if people believe it's what they do versus what Christ did, not only will they approach God in an unhealthy way, but they will miss the most essential aspect of salvation. Let me remind you of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. And you... We're also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, not when you did enough awesome things, not when you followed a right, you know, the right amount of rules and there was behavioral management, not when, you fill in the blank, when you believed, when you trusted, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Friends, it is through our trust in what Jesus did and nothing about what we do that allows us to receive the Spirit, which guarantees our salvation. This, this is the new covenant that Jesus came to establish. Jesus brought something completely new. Then this new covenant made available through his blood released us from the burden of having to follow rules in order to keep a relationship. Jesus didn't come to offer an update. Let me be clear about this. He didn't come to offer an up update. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. He came to offer something completely new. And underneath this new covenant of grace, Jesus was inviting unbelieving, misbehaving, troublemaking men and women to follow him. People like you and me, who have failed and fallen more times than we would like to admit. People on the fringes who feel they've all but been forgotten. And because of the Father's great love that we read about in Ephesians 3, this love that surpasses, it surpasses knowledge, we now can be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And maybe the most important, we have a path towards forgiveness. 
So when these early Jewish followers are trying to throw the law back in front of people as a prerequisite, they were essentially removing everything Jesus came to put in place and the gift that he was bringing to us from our Heavenly Father. Let me remind you what Paul says about that in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, even when we had nothing to offer. It is by grace, everybody say grace. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Everybody say grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it is by that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is not from performing. It's not from doing enough good stuff. It is not from following a set of rules and regulations. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can say, look how awesome I am. For the early Jewish followers of Jesus, this was incredibly hard for them to grasp this idea that, that it was free, this, this gift of grace, it was free. And so it only made sense for them to add something to it, to add conditions. And friends, anytime we add conditions to God's grace, you know what that makes it? It means it's not unconditional. So if we find ourselves living back underneath the old covenant, the law of Moses, or any other kind of works-based approach to God, then we are ultimately shackling ourselves to a pathway that will lead to a dead end. Paul goes as far as to call it a curse. Let me show you what he says in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous, they're gonna live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does not do these things, or the, I'm sorry, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Thank you, Jesus. And why was it a curse? Because it pointed to a standard of perfection that we could never obtain on our own. In, in other words, the law kept people in pursuit of God without ever allowing them to get to him. I'm gonna show you something that I think is really interesting. I'll kind of get off subject. It's not really off subject, but get off path just for a second. Uh, in Exodus chapter 32, we see something interesting happen. When Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, holding the Ten Commandments, he notices that a lot of the Israelites are worshiping this golden calf that they've created because they felt like they needed to worship something. And then because of God's wrath in that moment and the fact that they were already turning away from him, it says that in that day, the day that the law came down, 3,000 people perished. 3,000. You know what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 41? So here we have the law come down. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says the Spirit comes down. And now we have a new covenant, the covenant of grace that Jesus made available to us through the cross. And then the Holy Spirit falls on the early followers and disciples. You know how many, how many, said that, you know how many uh, were said to be saved that day? 3,000. When the law came down, it brought death. About 3,000. When the Spirit came down, it brought life, about 3,000. Let me end with something that I think will be incredibly practical. And to do this, I'm going to invite my friend Abby to come up on stage and 
get in place, and she's going to sing us a song here in just a moment. I want, to, I want you to listen to every single lyric. And as she does that, I want to remind you that when we add conditions to God's grace, we're saying that Jesus wasn't enough. We're saying he didn't accomplish everything. And ultimately, to illustrate this, here's the way I would say it. We start to add strings. We start to add strings to something that's supposed to have no strings attached. In other words, we start to add strings like this. Hey, you need to do enough. You need to do enough. String attached. But let us all be reminded today, it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ did. You got to obey the rules first, right? It's behavioral management. You can't get into this club until you obey the rules, until you get your life straightened out, right? String attached. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. Maybe this whole idea of, you know, ethnicity, and even though this was a much bigger deal for the Galatians at this time, specifically the Jewish people, because all they had ever known is that the Israelites, you know, this, they, were, they were God's chosen people, but now Gentiles, anyone, all nations could come to faith, <clears throat> excuse me, could come to faith in God through Christ. And even though we wouldn't fall into that same context, some of us still today, hopefully not you, but you know that there are people out there that believe because of the color of their skin, that somehow they're, they're better. It's not about our bloodline. It's about his bloodshed. And this last one, man, this is the biggest one, if you ask me. I've had so many conversations with people who, in attempting to help them to understand the grace of God, and I talked to them about making the step of baptism, one of the number one responses that I've got is, I'm not there yet. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you're not there? Do you believe that Jesus died for his sins? Yes. Do you believe that the only way to have salvation is through him? Yes. The, the, where, where are you stuck? Well, Aaron, you don't know my past. Aaron, you don't know what's in my rearview mirror. You don't know what's following you. Don't, you don't understand that I don't deserve this. And so they feel like they got to, let me get my life cleaned up first. They feel like they got to go get their life cleaned up first before they're worthy. Listen to me, this is huge. The only thing that can clean your life up is the grace of God. That's the only thing that can make you clean. You don't have to do anything other than trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior in order to receive that. And how foolish, I, th I can almost see Paul telling us this, how foolish would it be for us to feel like that we can get our lives cleaned up without Jesus? And so if that's, ever, if that's your stumbling block, if that's been your obstacle to be obedient in baptism, which just represents the forgiveness of your sins, the washing, then I would encourage you to take that step towards Jesus today. There's nothing holding you back. There's nothing you have to do. It is no strings attached. But friends, sometimes what we do as, <clears throat> as we attach these strings, these strings with time become chains. And these chains hold us back from living freely within the grace of God that was made available to us through, through Jesus. A chain that one of my friends here recently named Ken broke. Here's a picture of him. 82 years old, and for the first time in his life, he was realizing what the grace of God meant for him, and so he was obedient in baptism. 82 years old, you know what that means? Friends, it means it's never too late. It means it's never too late. So let me remind you of something that Paul said in Galatians chapter five. He says, so Christ, in the midst of us adding strings, in the midst of us creating chains, Christ has truly set us free. So make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up, tied up again in slavery to the law or any other works-based approach of God. This is truly no strings attached. Let me end with this statement. Stop trying and start trusting because through faith in Christ, there are truly no strings 
attached. Let me pray for us. Lord, as much as we know this, and for those of us that have been around the church for a while, sometimes we know things, but for whatever reason, we're not living in them. And so, God, would you help us to find the freedom that comes with grace, that we don't have these chains that are associated with the gift that you have given us called grace, that we don't have to constantly be worrying about, have I done enough? Is is my relationship with God still intact? Is God upset with me? Is he frustrated? Is he mad at me? Is he filling the blank? And God, I know that this doesn't negate the importance of us having a posture of living our lives for you. But God, would you make sure that we keep from adding this kind of horrible theology of a performance and how it appeals to our pride and that we have a doing and it's about behavioral management and whatever else because we truly miss out on the fact that this was a no-strings-attached gift that you were giving to us through Jesus. And so God, let us live freely in that grace today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.